We pick up our examination of John 5 without further prelude by considering the way in which the Lord responded to this charge laid against him by those who were so moved to attack him and plot his death because he had done a good deed on the Sabbath day. Verse 19 Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself. Now, it's very wrong to stop there. I stopped there purposely just now, because it does sound extraordinary for, a, for anyone to stand up and maintain their equality with God, and the beginning of their defense is to say that he can do nothing. Now, that's not exactly what he said. So we'll now go on. The Son can do nothing of himself. But what he seeth the Father do, for what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. When you get to the end of that verse, instead of this one saying he can do nothing, he says, I can do everything. But he doesn't do anything of himself. The self-limitation of Christ is misunderstood because he stooped. They deny that he had anywhere to stoop from. Because he became a man of sorrows, he knew what the glory was. Because he was a man of poverty, he left riches behind. So, let's remember, he said, the son can do nothing of himself. But what he seeth the father do, is anyone in this congregation, either visible or invisible congregation, ever seen what the father does? You've got a vague idea of what the father does. But could you ever stand up before men and say, what the, whatever he seeth the Father do, for what things soever he doeth, what things soever, not some things, not the easy things, but whatsoever he seeth the Father do, these also, also, doeth the Son, likewise. You can't get away from it. If this doesn't mean equality, what does it mean? Equality of ability to see and to do Everything and anything which the Father does. Well, no ordinary mortal man in his senses could ever stand up before others and make that claim. Well, there's only one thing to do with this man who's making this claim in John's Gospel. You've either got to take up stones, if you're a believer in the law of Moses, and stone him. They did it. They took up stones to stone him. Or you've got to come at last and bow in his presence and say, My Lord and my God, you can't stop halfway and say, well, he was a well-intentioned man. That won't do. This claim's too vast. So, we go further. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him. That's another thing. He says, I see all that the Father does. But I'll tell you something else. He shows me all that he does. And he shows me because he loves me. And showeth him all things himself that himself doeth. And then he says, I'll go further. He will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. And we look just now when examining the structure that this is balanced presently by that marvel not at this. For the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. And before he departed from this world our Saviour stood beside a grave and a man that was there dead and buried for four days past and his voice 
was the only instrument used to bring a man back from death. He stood there before that empty before that tomb was emptied, and he dared to say, "I am the resurrection and the life." You could understand him saying after Lazarus was raised from the dead, but the venture to say it before, and it was only Jesus who was a friend of Mary and Martha. This is the challenge which he accepted, and his voice was all that was necessary. He said, "Lazarus, come forth." And someone came forth from the grave. Not merely a spiritual resurrection brought from anywhere and nowhere, but from the grave. He raised a man from the dead. And he says here, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. And we go back again. Verse 21. Notice the as again. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, Anyone who believes the Bible at all would recognize that the Father, he has the, he has the power to raise from the dead. You've got it in the Old Testament, one or two occasions, and that would go without controversy. The controversy is about the Son. Even so, the Son quickeneth whom he will. He is independent quickening. doesn't say he quickeneth anyone that the Father directs his attention to, which of course would be true, but he says, oh no, just as the Father, so the Son quickeneth whom he will. The next element of equality is judgment. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. That of itself is so stupendous as to be almost unbelievable. The countless millions that will have to come before judgment. And to think that that man who walked the earth, that man who was despised and rejected, is to be the sole arbiter of their eternal destiny. Can you believe that any mere mortal person could bear such a burden without being utterly crushed by it? The Father judges no man, but hath committed all judgment under the sun. But he's done it with a purpose. You say, if you go on talking like this, you'll make the sun equal with the Father. Isn't that just exactly what I'm telling you? I'm telling you that these things have been given to me so that you'll have not the slightest hesitation. I don't know how some people react to these things, but there is an, an element of teaching which makes the Father, He's really God, you know, after all. He's the one that matters most and uh, we don't understand this trinity very much. And so, like, we can't explain it. But there's no such thought here. Here is perfect equality. Let's, let him speak for himself. Why should this be done? That all men should honour the Son, even as they honour the Father. There isn't anything left out. There isn't any prayer. There isn't any bowing, there isn't any acknowledgement that you give to the Father that you hold back from the Son. And then he adds something more. He that honoureth not the Son, honoureth not the Father which hath sent him. Now I know some good Christian people that honour the Father, but they do not quite give the honour to the Son. Do you know what it says here? That although they think they're giving the Father the honour, they're not. For the Father says, I will not accept that from any person who doesn't honour my son. Here we have this absolute equality demonstrated 
in words that are beyond the possibility of dispute. I'll mention that again because it's so important and then we'll go on. Why is all judgment committed to the Son? Among other things, this, that all men should honour the Son even as they honour the Father. And you cannot bypass it and say, no, I prefer to honour the Father and leave the question of the deity of Christ alone. He says, you can't do it. For you cannot honour the Father and bypass the Son. Now we have another passage which is waiting for its echo, verse 24. But of itself, verse 24 is a very blessed part of Scripture. It has been used over and over again to bring a person to a saving knowledge of Christ. In my very early days, I uh, came into touch with the gospel work of the Bermondsey Gospel Mission. And in later days, for 50 years afterwards, or more, or less, I'm not quite sure, I remember that Madam Annie Ryle, as she was known, she said in that meeting, I went to that seeking sinner and I used my favourite text. This was the favourite text of this evangelist. Verily, verily. Do remember that the word verily is the Hebrew word Amen in the New Testament. It's simply a double Amen. And a double Amen to a Jew meant something that was extraordinarily important. Don't miss this, whatever you do. It was a far deeper than saying, now this is without the word of a lie. That's a bad way to speak. This was a solemn introduction. You see, the Apostle Paul was a Jew, brought up in this same tradition, and he had another way of saying it. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. He says that more than once. So here's one of these. You collect them in John's Gospel, if you will. Amen. Amen. I say unto you, He that heareth my word, that's me, and believeth on him that sent me, that's the Father, you cannot separate them, <laughs> hath everlasting life. And to have positively everlasting life brings negatively these other things. You cannot have everlasting life and be in danger of condemnation. Not possible. Condemnation and everlasting life cannot walk together. You're either under condemnation or liable to it, or you're past. Oh, I'm quoting the scriptures, aren't I? But he's past. He's a movement. You've come out of one place into another. This is conversion. This is salvation. This is believing the gospel. You are past from death unto life, from Adam to Christ, from types and shadows to reality. All we can go on. And this is echoed now by, um, presently, in the next verse, by the resurrection of actual people. I'll, I'll go on in verse 25. Verily, verily, here's another Amen. I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is. Notice that. The hour is coming, this present moment. Now, before we go further, look further down with you. Verse 28. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming. But he doesn't say this present moment. So that he says it twice. Once he's talking about the hour that's now upon them. Next time he says, and it's going to be repeated in another form presently. Now what's going to be repeated? Resurrection life. But you don't, you don't have resurrection life now. You do. You anticipate the resurrection. The moment you pass from death unto life, what sort of life are you passing into? The life that will know no end. 
the resurrection life, the eternal life, which is the gift of God. Whether you're enjoying it at this moment and using it's another matter, but it's yours. In that bank, it's so safe that there's no possibility of any notice being put up. This bank is closed, we are ceasing payment. I speak that which I do know. I had my tiny little savings in a tiny little bank because I hadn't got cheap enough to go to a big one and they shut and I lost some. But there's none going to be shut and lost some in this. Oh, here it is. So it says, let's get it again. Verily, verily, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead, now that can't mean the physically dead in their graves, but the spiritually dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. And they that hear shall live. That's, that's the preaching of the gospel. That's the result of preaching of the gospel. And then it's going to be repeated in another sense, in a physical sense, where we go back to verse uh, 28, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, and that's future, not now is, in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. So you were emphasizing his voice. And if you like to notice, the hearing of his voice is matter of life and death, and it's a mark of those who are the true sheep. If you'll just turn to chapter 10 for a moment, this is rather an important little addition. In chapter 10, where he has the figure of the good shepherd and the sheep, he says, verse 25, Oh, they say, tell us, if thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. You, you wonder what some people mean when they say, tell us plainly, don't you? Could anyone tell you more plainly that he was claiming equality with God than these opening words in chapter 5? The Son could do nothing of himself but whatsoever he sees the Father do, that he does likewise. And that God the Father intends that you should honour the Son just exactly the same as you honour the Father. All judgments given unto him, not to the Father. And then they said to him, now tell us plainly. What can you do with people like that? And so he says, I told you, and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But, although those works bear witness you believe not. And why do you not believe? Oh, is a deep truth coming out, friends. A very searching deep truth. You believe not because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. He doesn't say that because you don't believe me, you cease to be my sheep. He says, that's the mark. Do you want to know whether you are one of my sheep or not? Just consider what your reaction is to my word. Let's read what he says. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand, I and my father are one. Here it comes. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. They were logical. They didn't say, oh, well, we just let it pass. They said, we can't let this pass. We've either got to accept this man and believe that he's God manifest in the flesh or we've got to stone him as the law of Moses said. And that must be the final uh, 
conclusion of any sane person reading this challenge. Now, chapter 5 again. Once more, he comes back to this other mighty thing with regard to judgment. Verse 26, For as the Father hath life in himself, always a passage that would need a further exposition. Naturally, God has life in himself, inherent life, dependent upon nothing. One of the reasons why God has made us as we are, constituted as we are, that we can't go very far before we have to stop work, sit down and have something to eat, get it all washed up and put away, packed up again, and then before you know where you are, down you go again and have something to eat, and you say, oh, that's lovely. It isn't, friends. It's an indication of our mortality, indication of our frailty. One day, now this is going to upset some people, I know one person was looking forward to the most gorgeous banquet you could imagine in glory, but I said, I don't think you'll have anything to eat at all. Why? Because you belong to the risen Christ, and he's got life in himself. Because I live, you should live also. You'll have something better to do with your time. Now then, let's come back here. He says, um, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. Now, go back to the first chapter in, in mind. It says in the first chapter, In him was life. Well, you say, how could you say, I'm going to give it to him if it was already his? Ah, but in chapter 1, it was the Word before he became flesh. And then after he became flesh and became a man, then into that man, in that capacity, he was given this equality with the Father. He was given this position of having life in himself. That belongs to no one except Christ, to have life in himself. Then he picks it up further and says, repeats this question of judgment. Just as we had earlier, the Father judges no man. So it says here, again, and hath given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Look at the condescension of God in this chapter. He keeps on telling you why he does things. Here's one of them. Why is it that the Son is going to judge all men? He's going to be judged by his peers, if you could so put it. It's not a far-off distant God who's never known anything about this tribulation and trouble and difficulty in this world in which we live. The one who's going to sit upon the throne of universal judgment has walked this earth, has known its sorrows, has understood its perplexities, and you can begin to think, I should get ju justice there. If there's any reason to give me an extension of mercy, I can get it there. And so all this has been written for our uh, learning. And hath given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now we come down to the verse 30 which balances verse 19. I'm going to read 19 and I'm going to read 30 together now because they're the beginning and the ending of this section. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. Now the conclusion. Verse 30. I can of mine own self do nothing. Now in the first argument, he said he saw what the Father did. Now he says, I hear. This one can both see and hear the works of the Father and do them. And not one of us can do that. We have to use the mediation of Christ. We only see the Father through him. 
as he said later on, you know, have I been so long time with you? He that seeth me, seeth the Father. He that heareth me, heareth the Father. I can of mine own self do nothing, as I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Will you turn to chapter 8, verse 14 for a moment? Chapter 8, verse 14. Verse 13, the Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself, thy record is not true. You see, they were practically quoting the law, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word should be established. Or now Saviour said, Yes, I'll concede that that is true. Jesus answered and said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. But here in the first case, in chapter 5, he says, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. But he says, I'm not standing and asking you to take my bare word. Isn't that extraordinary? This one who could do all that. He still said, I'll bring evidence. I'll give, give you witness. And what does he say? If I bear witness of myself, there is another that bears witness of me. He said, you send unto John, and he gave testimony. But I have a greater witness than that of John, verse 36. What's a greater witness? What the works which the Father hath given me to finish? The same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. And the Father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me. Now listen to this. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape. Now lift that out of its context and you can say, well, that's true of all men. But this is referring to some particular witness that was born to Christ. Have you got it? This is the witness that John saw at the river Jordan. This is the witness that was given to Christ. He heard a voice saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And he saw the Spirit descending in a shape like a dove. He says, You've never heard his voice, nor seen his shape. I have. John did. These are testimonies that belong to me personally. I ask you to accept me for the very work's sake because of their evidence that the Father is with me and sent me. But again he says, Ye have not his word abiding in you. That's very much the same as you will not, you cannot hear my voice because you're not my sheep. For whom he hath sent, him ye believe not. Well that brings us round pretty well to the limit of our time once again. To go on to the next section would rather spoil it. So the next time we meet together with these short studies for young believers in such tremendous passages as we try to race through in these few minutes, I want to take up the closing testimony of this uh, John 5, 39, where it speaks about the scriptures and their testimony because that brings it home to us. We have never seen the Son of God in the flesh. We have never seen him raise the dead or cleanse the lepers or open the eyes of the blind. And so you say, we're at a disadvantage. Well, wait a minute. We have the inspired record for all time. And it's with us today. And we can search those scriptures. And we can read what God has been pleased to record concerning this and other most vital matters. So before we close this aspect of this subject, 
we shall have to meet together again with this closing section of John 5 dealing with the scriptures and take it further as a study in John's Gospel the way in which the scripture is itself referred to by our Saviour, by the writer of John and other related matters. I may say for the perhaps the encouragement of you who are listening in distant parts I don't know whether I've started stammering, stuttering or dithering uh, there's more words I could say uh, but I have not been to bed all night I started on a journey back to this chapel yesterday afternoon at 1.15 and I just managed to get here in time to take the morning service and when you reach the age of nearly 80 and you can do those two things you'll be able to say out of a full heart the life I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For I'm fairly certain I wouldn't have been able to have continued and got so far as I have unless there'd been this power of the risen Christ. And so we translate it into terms of everyday life sometimes. We've got to watch our step, but sometimes it's wise for us to say, it works, friend, it works. So when you are put to a strain, remember that you can take the language of the Apostle Paul who was in the same predicament many a time he said, who is sufficient for these things? And the answer is given, my grace is sufficient. I can do all things. Not all things universally, but all those things that it's supposed for me to do. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me.